Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I'd ask you to please turn your Bibles to Hebrews 13, 17. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 13, 17. Well, brothers and sisters, we have arrived at our third and final week discussing biblical eldership, and it's such an important topic for us to have discovered and to walk along and to embrace over the course of the last three weeks. We have one more lesson from Hebrews 13, 17, which will wrap up the conversation, but it's been a needful one, hasn't it, in regard to biblical eldership, as we approach December 5th in particular. December 5th will mark the elder affirmation of Larry Clock, Dar Gruy, and Mark Graham at Community Bible Church. So there's great joy ahead for us even into next week. Our path to knowing biblical eldership on this journey in Hebrews 13, 17, we have noted the author of Hebrews is seeking three responses of the saints to his commands in Hebrews 13, 17. You can see them in the text there. The saints must respond to his commands. They are to obey and to submit by first recognizing the elders' authority. We talked about that two weeks ago. Last week, we discussed number two in this three-response list of the saints. Respecting the elders' responsibility is a response required of the saints. And then third, today, we will discuss the saints' need to be found Revering the elders' personality. Recognizing the elders' authority, respecting the elders' responsibility, and today, revering the elders' personality. You see in the text two commands, two reasons for the commands, and two blessings of the commands. And we've been able to discuss the elders' authority and the elders' responsibility. We noted that the office of elder is established and created by God, which demands obedience from the saints. Last week, we added up eight efforts of the elders, including these are men who keep watch over your souls. They're men who are praying for you. They're preaching to you. They hold the truth. They exhort in sound doctrine. They refute those who contradict. Their job is to be shepherding the sheep and overseeing the flock. Elders are men who serve voluntarily with zeal and gentleness, never guilted or bullied into service, never screaming or manipulating to have their way, and never seeking personal gain at the expense of the saints. On the contrary, these are men concerned with the care of your soul, which is work with the greatest amount of intensity. The intensity of the work is so great because the elders must give an account to God for their conduct as leaders in the church, specifically as it related to the growth of your soul and your growth in Christ-likeness. At this point, you've learned a lot about biblically qualified elders, and yet there's plenty more for you to learn you need to know today about the content of the character of your elders. You need to know the qualifications of their service. You need to know God's expectation for their morality, their manners, and their methods. Because when you do, as the title of today's message indicates, you will revere their personality. You will esteem their character. You will recognize they are men full of joy in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the only way that this could go down you will see that is their nature. They are men full of joy and zeal to care for your soul and for Jesus' church. By knowing their nature, you will grow to love them, and you will gladly obey them, and you will desire that these men live in joy and not in grief. Good leaders bring great joy to their people. Solomon said in Proverbs 29, verse 2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when a wicked man rules, people groan. It should be our hope and our joy, our expectation that the church should know greater leaders and more joy than the people of Florida have known 
who have been enjoying God's gift of quality leadership in the person of Governor Ron DeSantis since 2019. DeSantis is doing an amazing job as governor of Florida, bringing great joy to the sunshine state. He's been leading the nation in responding to the coronavirus craziness in our country. Not only did he file a lawsuit against the Biden administration's vaccine mandate earlier this month, DeSantis directed the Florida Health and Education Departments to issue rules barring school districts from requiring students to wear masks without allowing parents to opt out. DeSantis said face mask mandates violate a Florida law that says parents have a right to make educational and health care decisions for their children, to which we all would say amen. You think everyone in Florida would be overwhelmingly thankful for fearless leadership out of their governor, Ron DeSantis, but that's not the case. That's not the way this works. At least 10 school districts, including some in many of the largest cities, had been defying Governor Ron DeSantis' ban on mask mandates. Palm Beach County School District was one of these that readily defied Governor DeSantis' order. They eagerly masked all their students against the will of the parents and the students and in violation of the governor's order. Amazingly, last week, the school board there in Palm Beach reversed their masking policy. You should wonder why. Well, what caused them to turn course? Why all of a sudden head back and do the obedience to Governor Ron DeSantis? Well, you'll find out it wasn't obedience to Ron DeSantis at all. What brought about their repentance? What brought about their change of mind? It was a testimony of a young girl, eight years old, named Fiona, at a school board meeting that changed their tune. She had been suspended 38 times by the district for not wearing her mask in class, and she told them she wasn't going to ever wear the mask until they ended the insanity of their mask mandate. You say, crazy, right? Crazy. Why all the pain, you wonder, from the school district? Why all the fear-mongering and fear-spreading among the students only to reverse your course and do what you were told by the governor? Why all the over-regulation and bullying on the part of the school district? Why not just listen to the leaders when they speak righteousness to you like Governor DeSantis had been trying to all along? How is it possibly the case that the defiance and courage of an eight-year-old girl named Fiona was more credible to the Palm Beach County School District than the orders of Governor Ron DeSantis? Why not obey Governor DeSantis' order the first time and, by doing so, increase everybody's joy? Why not? This is the reason. The reason is this. All humanity are like sheep and are easily conditioned to live by lies. Doing the truth, doing righteousness, is antithetical to the human condition. It's easier to live by lies, to not stir the pot, to not aggravate brutal dictators. After all, these are the ones who feed us. They're the ones who clothe us. They are the ones that give us the grace of allowing us housing and allowing us phones and allowing us jobs and televisions. Our peace with them requires our silence in the face of their tyranny, right? This is the easiest way, isn't it? We shouldn't want additional pain brought to our lives. We shouldn't want to do righteousness. We should just obey them, right? Because after all, the government is not telling you to disobey God. The government is telling you to do righteousness on a daily basis, right? That's what they're telling us every day is to do righteousness. Is that right? Herein lies the problem. As sheep, we have low expectations of our leaders, a faulty understanding of the righteousness of God, and a willingness to live by lies. As sheep, we give our obedience so long as they don't tell us to disobey God. 
I would ask you the case. If it's vaccine today and it's being a eunuch tomorrow, are you going to get the eunuch treatment? Are you going to get the eunuch care? What if some of us are made eunuchs because of the vaccine? This is low expectation, brothers and sisters. To really honor God, you should be demanding that your leaders practice righteousness. You must have higher expectations of your leaders. You must demand that they know right from wrong, good from evil. And can we just say this? Boy from girl? Freedom from tyranny? That your leaders would punish evildoers and reward those who do righteousness. You see, the problem in America is not with wicked leadership as much as it is with weak sheep who have low expectation of their leaders and live by the lies they are told. This was exactly the challenge that plagued the life of Alexander Solzhenitsyn in Russia, born in 1918. Solzhenitsyn was a historian, philosopher, and one of the most famous political prisoners in Russia from 1945 to 1953. He wrote an article titled, Live Not by Lies in which he was begging for his fellow countrymen to end their cowardice toward the evil tactics of Joseph Stalin's regime. Speaking of his fellow Russian sheep, he said, We lack resolution, pride, and enthusiasm. We fear acts of civil courage, like that of Fiona. We have been so hopelessly dehumanized that for today's ration of food, we are willing to abandon all of our principles, our souls, and the efforts of our predecessors, as well as the opportunities for our descendants. Just don't disturb our fragile existence, he says. Sounds a lot like Esau. The tyranny of Stalin's totalitarian government caused the people to be pushovers, content to allow government evil in exchange for bread. They had low expectations of leaders, Solzhenitsyn provided a list of ways his fellow Russians could live not by lies, telling them, don't be compelled to attend government-sanctioned demonstrations. Don't buy or support newspapers or magazines that distort the truth. Walk out of any meeting where the speaker is telling lies and pushing propaganda. He warned them, we lie to ourselves to preserve our peace of mind. Did you hear that? He said, we lie to ourselves to preserve our peace of mind. That begs this question. What is the value of peace bathed in lies? What is the value? You're in Hebrews 13, 17, where I say to you, the author is warning you of this exact same problem. You are being lied to, not by your spiritual leaders in the church, but you are being lied to by yourself. How do you lie to yourself? Here's how you lie to yourself. In your flesh, in your sinfulness, in your pride, you don't want to obey and submit to the God-appointed spiritual leaders over you in the church. You think you will find more peace and profit in following your own unrighteous ways. But here, the author of Hebrews says to you, live not by lies. Live not by lies in your head about what you think leadership in the church should look like. He is saying obedience is the source of double blessing. Let's read the text together and find the double blessing which comes as a direct result of obedience. Obedience to men who know righteousness. Obedience offered from a heart that knows and loves the character of men keeping watch over your soul just as God designed. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In the text, brothers and sisters, he is telling you, trust Christ. He is the head of his church. Trust him to appoint leaders. We saw two baptisms this morning. Do you trust that Christ does the salvation of people's souls? Do you trust that his death, burial, and resurrection, that he purchased salvation for us on that cross? Do you trust that? That's what he said. Salvation is simply this. If you're here and you don't know this, I want to tell you plainly, you are a sinner. This Jesus who we represent died to pay for sins. He's the only way you can be made right with God and your conscience can be cleansed. Do you trust him? Do you trust him for the washing and cleansing of your sins? If that trust is something that you are willing to give to Christ because God has drawn you here, God has called you to the message of salvation, God has called you to understand his word, then isn't it also the case that if you trust those promises from the scripture, that you should also trust Christ's provision for the church in the way of biblical leadership? You trust your spiritual leaders because they're the ones that were designed by God to lead you. Your spiritual leaders are the ones that God has put in place in your life that know righteousness. And they're the ones that are keeping watch over your souls. How crazy is this, brothers and sisters? Sheep willingly submit to unrighteous, harsh, cruel, dictatorial, totalitarian, secular leaders. But in the church, they must be commanded to obey righteous, gentle, kind, peaceful, loving, spiritual leaders. How awkward is this? How shocking is this? In society, the sheep accept government lies to preserve fake, phony, false peace. In the church, the sheep reject biblical commands which create the fullness of their joy. It's as if everyone would love more and more of Romans 13.1 and less and less of Hebrews 13.17. Brothers and sisters, there's got to be some balance in your life. Brothers and sisters, the fullness of joy is found when you obey and submit to righteous leaders in the government and especially in the church. In the text today, the author of Hebrews encourages obedience for the experience of double blessing. Who wants double blessing this morning? It's available to you. It's right here in the text. What double blessing do we find in the text? What twin blessings are the fruit of obedience? Number one, the first fruit is joy for your leaders. The second fruit is profit for you. It's a very simple outline. We're going to go over this outline. I can tell you that we will close with point number two way at the end, so don't expect it too, too soon. We've got a, a lot of work to cover the joy for your leaders. I've got to make quite a case for you of why you would have joy for your leaders, why you would rejoice in their joy. So let's look at that then. Let's look at joy for your leaders as the first of two blessings of obedience in the text today. Point number one in your notes, joy for your leaders. Let's read the text again as the author is concerned with the joy that your spiritual leaders experience in this life because of your obedience. He says in verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. Certainly the author of Hebrews wants honor respect and obedience given to spiritual leaders in the church. That's why he gave the two commands, obey and submit. That's why he offered the two reasonings for you. These men are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account to God. These two blessings also are there as well. 
to entice you, to draw you in, to cause you to see this is what righteousness does, this is what it looks like. Your leaders get joy out of this process, and you profit in this as well. Instead of just saying, look, you need to obey because you get two blessings. The author of Hebrews makes a special appeal to the conscience of his audience. In the verb poieo, he uses the subjunctive mood, which is the mood of possibility, the mood of wishing, expressed in terms like may and might, and in our text, the word let. The author's desire is that his audience of Messianic Jews would allow and work toward joy for their spiritual leaders, which only comes through their obedience and submission. Now, he's, he's asking a bit awkwardly for their compliance to the commands by calling attention to the twin benefits that come in obedience. He's saying, consider what you get in your obedience. Now, let me ask you this. Is calling attention to the benefits of obedience wrong? Now, you parents are doing this all the time. Now, if you do what I'm asking you, I'll give you a cookie. No, it's not wrong to call attention to the benefits of obedience. Suppose someone here needed to propose to their girlfriend today. And suppose you take this girlfriend of yours and you race off to a romantic place like Priest Lake and you walk out on the pier at Hills Resort and you take her by the hand and you confess your abiding love for her. And you get down on one knee and you tell her, sweetheart, honey, I love you so much. Will you marry me? And suppose that she says no. Now, if this is you, can I suggest that you use the mood of possibility to entice her? It would sound like this. She says no, and you say, please? I've got two tickets to the Gonzaga game tonight, and if you will marry me, I will take you to watch the Gonzaga University Bulldogs play Duke. What do you say? Now, this might actually work. Now, you might actually get a sale, I mean, a marriage here. She might actually say yes to you, but only, only, pay attention, only if she loves the Zags. If she doesn't love them and want to be with the Zags more than she wants to be with you, she's not going to be your wife. So, too, the author of Hebrews is calling attention to the benefits of obedience to his wishes. He is enticing righteousness with two fruits of righteousness. The author doesn't need your love for him. He needs you to do what is right and good and just and love your leaders, love your elders. He wants you to have such an affection for your spiritual leadership that instead of thinking about your, your own joy first, you think about the joy that you can bring to your spiritual leaders. What creates their joy? Do you know what creates the joy of your spiritual leaders? What are they looking for from you? Is what they're looking for any different than exactly what God is looking for from you today? What does God want from you today? The big O word, right? O, obedience, exactly. This is what your spiritual leaders want as well. This begs the question, how will you grow in obedience to your leaders? What will cause you to think of their joy ahead of your own? Where can you get information about them that will stir the warmth of your affection and cause you to delight in obeying them? Turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3. Will you love your leaders more based on what they drive or where they live or where they went to college? Does it matter if they are tie and jacket men or they are mock neck sweater guys? No, it doesn't matter. 
Does it matter if they drink tea or coffee? Well, no, hang on, I set that one aside. That's beside my point. Here's my point. Does your love and obedience increase because you know their subjective preferences or because you know they meet God's objective criteria for biblical leadership? Your love for your leaders must increase when you see objectively these men are pleasing to God. When you see for yourself that God has caused them to meet his criteria, when you understand that when they have made a confession of faith in Christ and they have said, God saved me, I didn't save myself, and they live that out before you, that you can see that God also caused them and drew them to himself to be his leaders, even allowing for the circumstances in their life that attend to 100% obedience to the commands that we're going to read through. Do you think that a man gets through this list that we're going to read through in his own strength? Heaven forbid you leave here thinking that today. This list only happens by the grace of the hand of God on a man's life. Why are you in 1 Timothy 3? Because it is here in 1 Timothy 3 we see the content of the character of our spiritual leaders. It is here we learn about their biblical morality, their manners, and their methods. It is here where our hearts must be captivated by such a great list of qualifications which can only be achieved by the abiding, the abiding presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit and the favor of God being placed on a man's life over many years. You're in 1 Timothy, where Paul is telling Timothy qualified leaders meet special criteria and they do it faithfully over a number of years. Paul wrote this letter after his first Roman imprisonment. It is a letter that focuses on God's expectations of behavior for the saints in the church. It's a Christian conduct manual who was extremely helpful for Timothy, who was left behind in Ephesus in AD 64 to shepherd the church there. So let's read the qualifications of an elder from 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, and take time to consider the incredible content of the character required of the spiritual leaders in Jesus' church. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Paul gives Timothy nothing less than 16 objective qualities of biblical leadership. This list should cause you great rejoicing. This list proves God's favor, God's protection, God's goodness, God's faithfulness to his people. How many times in Israel did those leaders fail over and over and over again? And yet here in the New Testament, we have this list for us and their example of failure. God is faithful. He supplies. He delivers. And he's given you the qualities that you need to have the rest of your life to hold in front of you to know Am I dealing with biblically qualified men? The question far too often is, do God's sheep know God's requirements for their leaders? Further still, do God's sheep care 
if their leaders are biblically qualified to lead at all? How many churches today are plagued by sheep who don't either know them or care about them? These qualifications here in this list in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. How many Christians do you know that raise more concern over the qualifications of the coach assigned to their eight-year-old soccer team than to the spiritual leaders that they sit under every week in the church? When the American colonies banded together to fight off British tyranny, they selected a leader, George Washington, a man of immense moral character. At the same time, George Washington and Ben Franklin hired a former German officer named Baron von Steuben to lead and train the revolutionary militia into a, dis a disciplined fighting force. The Continental Army found success in battle because of the leadership and training of both General George Washington and Baron von Steuben. You could say that the original American military was a little German-engineered. Where you know that George Washington's moral compass guided him to honor, fame, and success at the first, uh, being the first president of the United States, it's also noteworthy to think about Baron von Steuben. Although able to lead men in military service, he did not share the same content of character that George Washington is known for. Baron von Steuben died this day. He died this day, November 28th. He lived a life of extravagance, squandered large grants of money given to him by Congress and the 16,000 acres parcel of land given to him by Congress for his service as well. 16,000 acres. How much are those worth today? He fell into debt and was only saved from total poverty by Congress voting to give him a life pension valued at $2,500 a year. Baron von Steuben was highly qualified to successfully lead the Continental Army. He would never qualify to be a shepherd in God's church. Who is qualified then to lead God's sheep? Let's be blessed to see the content of the character of spiritual leaders of Jesus' church so plainly described by Paul to Timothy in our text today. Paul presents 16 objective qualities of biblical leadership here in the text. And you'll be blessed if we take time to evaluate each of these one by one just a little and consider the great joy for the church when their leaders are qualified according to this list. I realize that I just scared a whole bunch of you. I said 16, and we're going to look at every one of them a little. Here we go. Let's consider objective elder quality number one. The first quality on the list is desire. Desire. First, we must note that this man has a desire that is not normal, but entirely supernatural. Listen to the text. We read in 1 Timothy 3.1, it is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So what do we find here in the text? Desire to lead God's people as an episkopos, as an overseer, is a good thing. In fact, desire is required. It's requirement number one. Elders are not men who are guilted into service to lead the church. It is great news for God's leaders that, that God's leaders desire to take the office of their own will, of their own volition, which is always incredible to me the beauty that God does when he stirs and draws and moves the hearts of men for his purposes. Do you understand that? If, if you don't like the idea that God puts election onto people, you shouldn't like the idea that he has good works to do for you to do for beforehand that you're to walk in, Ephesians 2.10, and you shouldn't like this either, that God appoints men, that he draws men, that he places this call, this charge onto men's heart and draws them meticulously orchestrating the details of their life. Do you realize that if any one of my children decided to flake off and do wild things, that would immediately disqualify me. You understand that, right? That's the seriousness of this office. 
It's not something that I hold together in my own strength, nor these men. It is something that God orchestrates. That's important for you to remember. In fact, it's a fine work that's happening here. It's a proper, a valuable, virtuous work, even a beautiful work. The Greek word here is the word kalos, which means good, proper, and beautiful. Pastor John MacArthur, he says to get the full sense of kalos, it's good to have it compared with a Greek counterpart, the word agathos. He says agathos is a common word in the New Testament that means inherently good, morally good, or practically good. Kalos goes one step further than agathos. Kalos fully covers the moral good of agathos, but kalos is beautiful. Kalos is lovely. Kalos is appealing to the eye on top of morally being good. Pastor John says this man, this elder, leads his family in such a way that his leadership is inherently good, and it is manifestly good to all those who perceive and see his leadership at home. Kalos, this word good, appears three times in our text. In verse 1 of chapter 3, we read, the desire of an elder is good, is kalos. In verse 4, the elder's leadership in his home must be kalos, it must be good, morally and externally, beautifully, aesthetically. Verse 7, the elder's reputation in the community is also to be kalos, which is good. This is moral and inherently good, morally and inherently good, in addition to being lovely and appealing to the eye. Kalos is precisely what the crowd in Galilee said of Jesus after he healed a deaf man. Mark records this event in Mark 7, 37. He said, they were utterly astonished, saying, he has done all things kalos, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. From good desire, Paul moves to the highest good as we see the second objective elder quality in the text. Point number two in your notes, the second objective elder quality is that the elder must be above reproach. We see that in verse two. An overseer then must be above reproach. Above reproach is an overarching command. It's the command that kind of governs and guides everything that's going to happen after it. Every quality that follows come under, comes under this heading, above reproach. It means not open to blame, not open to blame. What does it look like? Above reproach looks like this, living a life beyond allegation or accusation of wrongdoing. Alexander Strock says this means the elder's life is free from any offensive or disgraceful blight of character or conduct, particularly as described verses 2 through 7. When an elder, he says, is irreproachable, critics cannot discredit his Christian profession of faith or prove him unfit to lead. He has a clean moral and spiritual reputation. That's extremely important for you because if I had activities or these men that are going to be affirmed have activities going on that the church doesn't know about and that their wives don't know about, that's going to lead to ruin for the church. That's not the case of the biblically qualified leader. His life is right out there in the open. It's above reproach. What are the particulars then of above reproach? Is it entirely subjective or is it objective? Well, now we need to consider the details of above reproach. We see next in the text, the third objective elder quality is number three here. It is this. Paul says God's leaders must be the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. At this quality, biblical marriage comes into view. It is not the case that every elder has to be married. If one is married, this is the case. This is what this looks like. Marriage as God designed from creation 6,500 years ago, defined as one man and one woman, as we see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Not only is this a statement on biblical sexuality, that of male and female 
alone designed for sexual union, but it goes even further, declaring the value that God has placed on monogamy. Your sexuality is to be actively shared with one person, which is the person to whom you are legally married in a heterosexual one-flesh union. You know, we today, we're hard-pressed, really, to fully appreciate the value of this text for women. In the patriarchal societies of the past, women were the property of their husbands. It was entirely common for husbands to have multiple wives. I would remind you, that's never been biblical. That's never been God-honoring. Leadership in the church will both honor God and honor women being examples in society and in the church of biblical sexuality and biblical marriage. I love the way that this thought is expressed by an old Spanish proverb. It says this, quote, He who loves one woman loves all women. He who loves many women loves none. Also, I would say that inasmuch as your elders must enjoy monogamy in biblical marriage, they must also advocate the same for all of those who are in the church. You know, it is not okay for a biblical elder to practice one thing for himself and yet allow the people under his care to lower the standard, to be different than him, and to be unbiblical and unrighteous in their practices. And yet that's exactly what's going on in countless numbers of churches, evangelical churches in America and across the world today, where you're allowing a little homosexuality. You're allowing a little transgender, but that's not what you practice. Well, are you practicing righteousness or not? And if you are, shouldn't you advocate that for everybody that you're teaching? Absolutely you should. The same things that are true for the elders on this list, brothers and sisters, are the same things that are true for every one of you. So as I'm reading this list, this should be the office to which you aspire, at least in your character. I understand you might not want to come and teach, but at least in your character, you should pursue everything on this list. The qualities presented here are the standard of conduct for all of those in the church. There's nothing here that should escape your grasp. It's all for you. This is the practice of righteousness. You have to hold to this and hold people near you to this very standard. So then we go to objective elder quality number four. Number four on our list. Temperate is the word that we have here. Temperate, which is the Greek word nephalios. It means sober. The elder is a man who is well-balanced in all aspects of his life, vigilant even of his own behavior. Brad Clausen says he is a man in control of his physical appetites, maintaining sobriety in all areas to the extent that he has dominance over his flesh. I like that. Do you have dominance over your flesh, over your appetites, over your cravings? The elders must. They must be examples of self-control and purity for you personally and for the church. Purity for the church also then comes by the fifth objective elder quality we see in the text. The word prudent shows up in the text. Prudent is the word saffron, which is the employment of wisdom. It's also translated sensible, self-controlled. Prudence understands patience and the art of gathering all the facts and asking good questions. Prudence understands Proverbs 18, verse 17, which says this, The first one to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Biblical elders do the prudent, diligent work of examination. They labor at examination. Examination of lives, examination of theology, examination of culture and society. They must examine the things that are going on. Prudence, brothers and sisters, was the test and has been the test of all the biblical elders in all the churches 
for the past 20 months who are responding to the coronavirus pandemic. Many have failed the test as they are unwilling to employ wisdom and sensibility examining the facts. There's been an obligation to help people not live by lies. And many brothers and sisters, brothers, elders, fellow elders have failed at this point. Prudence is the exercise of wisdom and must be expected of God's elders just as they must be respectable in their conduct, which is the sixth objective elder quality in the list. You see the word respectable. Number six, objective elder quality. It's the word cosmion. It means honorable or well-ordered. The elder's life must be orderly, not filled with chaos. Otherwise, when would he have time to shepherd the flock of God? Why would he invite you over to his house filled with chaos? And why would you take his counsel and advice anyway and walk into the craziness of his world? Aren't you needing a place to land the craziness of your world into something safe? The elder whose life is not orderly will fall apart and lead to the ruin of the sheep under his care. For this reason, God's spiritual leaders are obligated to demonstrate that they live honorable, respectable, well-ordered lives. You need that from your biblical elders. And with the brothers who are going to be affirmed next week, that's what I have seen and can share and affirm to you of them. If you haven't seen it for yourself, I'm putting my stamp of approval. This is what these men do. They live this life, the respectable life. In addition to that, we see the seventh quality as well, objective elder quality number seven. These brothers and all biblical elders must be hospitable. Hospitable, the Greek word here is Philozenos. It literally means love of strangers. However, I would have you understand that you're talking about a context here regarding the local church and participation in it. And strangers means far more than random people. Strangers means those who live outside of your home. They're not part of your immediate family. They're other than those inside of your home. Biblical elders are those who understand in-home ministry. In-home ministry. They understand the personal dynamic involved in sharing time, sharing food, sharing their resources, and sharing the intimacy of their own homes. Hospitality is an incredible expression of warmth and love and grace. It's so necessary not just for the elders to practice this. This is something for the whole church. Extend warmth and love and grace. Open your homes. Be hospitable with one another. But you definitely need to see this practice from your elders. Have you been in their homes? God's leaders practice hospitality. They will let you into their homes. They want you to be there. Inside, you get to do a little bit of your inspecting. You, know? Ooh. you get to inspect a little bit. Are they really in private? Who they appear to be in public? Is that hour and a half, two hours on Sunday? Is that a show? Or does this guy's life match up with this in the privacy of his own home? Hospitality helps to answer this question building your love for their leadership of you because you see that it's consistent. We come to the eighth of these objective elder qualities, the eighth being this. The elder must be able to teach. Didacticos is the word, didactic. Elders must be skilled at instructing. The parallel passage is found in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, which says that elders must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with teaching with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. God will equip. God will send faithful men to preach and teach for you. 
Look over at 1 Timothy 4, verse 11. Look at 1 Timothy 4, 11. We discussed last week the priority of preaching in the church just as job of the elders is this, priority of preaching and prayer. Paul was so thankful that God raised up Timothy to help out in the churches that he was planting, specifically at Ephesus. And he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. That's preach. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Again, preach the word. Verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the elders. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay attention, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching, your preaching. Preserve, persevere in these things, for as you do, this will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Elders must be men who can preach and who can teach God's word faithfully to those that God has sent underneath their care. You can turn back, where were we at? First, uh, First Timothy 3. Objective elders, quality number nine then is this. We see in the list, the ninth objective elder quality is the elders must be not addicted to wine. The elders must not be addicted to wine. They must not be given to drunkenness. This is much like the call for temperance earlier, to be temperate, to have control over one's appetite. Here, Paul specifically addresses the issue of alcohol and drunkenness. Alcohol is not the issue, brothers and sisters. There is a Christian liberty attached to alcohol. We all understand that. Control of the mind is what's at issue. The desire of the heart is what's at issue. I've said this before, and I'll say it again for all that are here now. Your elders at Community Bible Church are men who fully abstain from alcohol. That's the policy that we have on our leadership team. That's what we've decided. We've seen the effects of alcohol in our own families' lives and the lives of others, and we've decided that we'll have nothing to do with it. You will not see our names plastered on a local television station for driving under the influence of alcohol. That has crushed leaders, schools, very, very close by to us right now. I would pray that this would bring peace, a peace to your mind and be a great blessing to you to know that, to know that. Let's look at the 10th objective elder quality then. The 10th is this, the, elder, the elders must not be pugnacious. Pugnacious is the word plectin. Violent is the idea. A violent man, a bully, one who's a striker, a hitter, prone to violence, given to heated arguments, quarrelsome in his nature. This can't be the elder of Jesus' church. The elders are not men given to creating a culture of fear, intimidation, or fits of rage coming out of them when they don't get what they want, whether among themselves or members of the body. Men who desire to shepherd Jesus' church must be void of a quick temper, and, and, and void of a predisposition to heated, unkind, gracious words that seek to provoke violence, fear, or intimidation. On the contrary, positively, Paul calls for the elders, this 11th objective, objective of uh, elders quality number 11, Paul calls for elders to be gentle. Gentle. Epiachus is the word here. Gentle, considerate, reasonable, mild, and patient. This 11th objective elder quality in our list, gentle. Gentle sits in sharp contrast, does it not, with pugnacious on this list and shows us that spiritual leaders are fully dependent on God. 
The strength of their hand, the power of their position, the force of long-winded, wordy persuasion matters nothing to these men. It's as if they preach and teach the sovereignty of God and then they live the sovereignty of God in their leadership. Elders delight in modeling the behavior that they love to see from you. Humility, gentleness, kindness, love. These qualities are delightful and help to powerfully build Jesus' church. Gentle elders understand human weakness. They understand human ignorance. And they make allowance for both, even the allowance for human conscience. I've been very mindful to say to you, I understand righteousness. Righteousness is not wearing masks and not being va uh, vaccinated. That's righteousness, okay? We also understand a grace provision for the conscience. We understand grace. We understand a conscience provision. Do you need to take the vaccine? Take it. Do you need to take, put, wear a mask on your face? Wear it. We understand righteousness and a conscience provision. Can I tell you that the government knows nothing of grace? It's a mandate. It's force. You won't get that in the church. You won't get that here. There's always grace here. We understand grace. This is gentleness. This is what your elders do. They understand gentleness. They understand human weakness and human ignorance. And they make allowance for both by extending patience, understanding, and forgiveness, teaching, and preaching. Paul exhorts the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 5, saying, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Elders know the gentleness that Paul required of the Corinthians who were fighting among themselves, taking their brothers to court in front of secular judges. He says to them in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7, Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Your elders are men who know this very quality. It's exactly the kind of gentleness that marks their spirit. Do you see this in your elders? Do you know and experience this from these men, this type of gentleness? Does it make you love and respect them all the more? Gentleness goes well with then the 12th in our list, the 12th objective of elder, objective elder quality. This 12th objective elder quality is this. Elders must be peaceable, not quarrelsome, without conflict. Biblical leaders have learned the lesson of Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3 very well. Proverbs 20, verse 3 says this, Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Spiritual leaders know how to be a calming influence in a tense situation. They know how to restore relationships willing to go the extra mile. They must be men ready to reconcile for the sake of Christ and the gospel of Jesus' church. This gospel of salvation, it has to be marked by men who are a calming influence. These are men that know peace because they gave up trying to build their own kingdoms, which takes us to the 13th objective elder quality in our list. The 13th objective elder quality, elders must be free from the love of money, which is to say that they're not greedy. These are men who are not covetous of money. They're not covetous of materialistic things. You can look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. 1 Timothy 6, 10. Spiritual leaders are captivated by Christ and the building up of his church. They are not enticed by the riches of this world, nor can these men be persuaded to show preference and partiality to the wealthy folks in the congregation. Money does not make the elders in the church move. This is a greatly uh, important piece of understanding that we have to know for the care of our own souls. These men are not persuaded by money. How dare elders change their care for your soul based on the amount of money that you give? That would be horrible if your spiritual soul care changed because of how much you contributed to this church. 
Just so you know, I don't know any of that. That's all kept by a secretary. I don't care to be persuaded one way or the other. That's not who I am. I'm not interested in the money. The Lord has made his men free from the love of money. And I praise the Lord for this. He allows his faithful spiritual leaders to escape this particular death. And you can see the fruit of this in the elder's family. Unquestionably, by not pursuing money and materialism, the diligent elder affords himself more time to cultivate quality relationship in his own family, which is what we find next in the text. That the 14th objective elder quality is this. Objective elder quality number 14, the elders must be good managers of their own home. Paul says the elder must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. 1 Timothy 3, verse 4. But if he does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And I love the simplicity of this illustration, as you do as well. Paul says the church is like a big family. How a man handles his own home gives you a window or a picture as to how he's going to handle things in the church. Further, all you have to do is look at his wife and his kids. If they are likable, lovable, respectable, obedient, that's the fruit of the father's management in addition to this, the blessing of God being placed on the man's life. The picture of a man's family is worth tens of thousands of words as to how well he'll lead in the church. Brothers and sisters, this is the standard. This is the qualification of elder, leader in the church, shepherd. You can't ask someone to duck out of the way of this, and you can't help them to duck out of the way of this. No one gets to run from these qualifications. You can't excuse bad behavior on the part of one of their children and just expect that that man continues to serve. I would also add, brothers, where are you on this one? Where are you on this one? This is not just for the man who aspires to the office of overseer. What is the management like in your home? If you're going to have this expectation of me and of the men who are going to be appointed next week, shouldn't you have this of yourself and your own home? Do you see the press that that gives to our church to do righteousness and practice purity here? I love it. I love the pressure that puts on you and your home. How dare you have expectations of my behavior that you don't have of your own? That's evil. It's here in the text. Tell you what, I'll run this road. These men will run this road. We'll do this to the best of our ability. God blessing all the way. Shore up your own homes. Let's all do this together. Let's get to the 15th objective elder quality in the text. The 15th is this. Elders must not be new converts. And Paul says, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Placing young men in leadership too early creates the opportunity for them to have great pride. This is especially the case with respect to the position of shepherd, elder, pastor. Newly converted men need to be allowed time to gain knowledge, to grow in biblical truth, while at the same time gaining biblical wisdom, watching and applying biblical truth to their life and learning to trust God and to trust His Word. You know, they need to make it to a few prayer meetings. They need to be praying for a while and understand what prayer is all about and the power that God authors through prayer. Young men need to be protected from themselves by allowing them to grow up in the church and be served by the elders before they would be called to join the team of elders. You know, it's not the case that you call a college freshman to play quarterback against the biggest rivalry in the season and expect to win the game. You don't do that. The college freshman 
who's going to play quarterback maybe someday needs to be eased into that position. He needs to watch the seniors. Same thing is true in the church. Finally, we come to Objective Elder Quality 16. Many of you are saying, hallelujah, we made it. We got through 16 points on the list today. That's fantastic. Paul says the elders must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Again, objectively, are your elders the same men in the church as they are outside the church? Earlier, in verses 4 and 5, Paul had a view of the elders and their conduct in the home. And here, Paul expects the conduct of the elders to be consistent from the home to the church to the work to the marketplace to the neighbors. Consistency is what's at issue. For the conscience of the elders and for the reputation of the church, consistency is the issue. Never could the church allow a man to lead whose behavior was less than consistent in all of these aspects of his life. Turn back in your Bibles to Hebrews 13, 17. So what do you think of the list? What do you think of it? There it is for you. What do you think of it? What do you make of that list? Are you blessed by the list that we just studied through? Do you understand your elders must meet these high caliber and God-given qualifications. And brothers and sisters, it is a joy to be able to tell you here at Community Bible Church, they do. Does knowing this list of qualifications of your leaders increase your love for them and obedience to them? This list represents who your elders are at the core of their being. This list speaks of their content of their character, their nature, their essence, the way the Lord has changed them and drawn their heart for this pursuit. This is why Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, he said to them this, he said, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give instruction to you, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. If you, brothers and sisters, truly understand your elders, and God's design for them in your life, you will esteem them very highly in love. You will revere their personality knowing how incredibly the Lord is the one who has impacted their nature to be the ones on the front line doing His will, leading His people. You will love them and obey them. and It will become your delight to allow your leaders joy and not grief. Which brings us to the second blessing in the text. After the first joy of the first blessing, which is joy for your leaders, we find the second of two blessings of obedience. The second blessing is profit for you. There is profit for you in the text. You're in Hebrews 13, 17, where the author of Hebrews makes this very point. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Don't grieve them. Don't grieve your leaders. To grieve them would be for you to go back to living by lies. Don't live by the lies in your head. Don't tell yourself that submission and obedience and righteousness, those are bad. I need to be a rebel. That would be good for me. That's not good. That's death. Don't do that. You must not live by the lies of your head about biblical submission to elders. The answer is knowledge. You must know these men. You must know the personalities of these men the characteristics, their nature, the core of their being, as we saw today in the text. The Apostle John said this in 3 John verse 4. He said, I have no greater joy than this, to hear my children walking in the truth. That comment from 3 John 4 is exactly what the biblical elders here believe. 
what they know, what they feel, what they desire, that, are, that the children of God are walking in the truth. You profit in the elders' joy, brothers and sisters. Do you know that? You profit in their joy. Their care of you spiritually is better when they're not thinking about the negative lacks and failures, when they're only delighted in the joy that is your obedience, in your doing of righteousness before God. This is to the glory of God and it's to your benefit. Will you think on the elders' joy first as a result of this message? Will the elders' joy be something that delights you? Will you recognize that's where your prophet's at? It's in their joy. Will you do the submission and the obedience commanded in the text? Will you bring joy to your elders, the church, and your life? Is this your prophet, the elders' joy? There's so much profit in this for you. God makes elders. Be blessed to know this. Esteem their character. This is profitable for you. You can see it over the course of the last year. You see it in the lives of men like John MacArthur, who stood firm regarding this COVID-19 pandemic. You saw it with James Coates in Edmonton, Alberta. You even see it today in a Finnish pastor, in a, a, a Finnish pastor, uh, Finnish, F-I-N-N-I-S-H. In post-Soviet West, in the post-Soviet West, he was criminally charged recently with preaching. They're calling preaching hate speech. He's charged, the first one to be charged. His name's Johan Pohoya. I would ask that you pray for him. He's just trying to lead a congregation of God's people. He's trying to do righteousness. He says that biblical marriage is what I defined to you earlier today. That's hate speech. Live not by lies. Father in heaven, thank you for providing for your church. You have strengthened your church through leaders qualified to lead your people. You haven't left us to our own whim. Father God, would you allow this congregation to be blessed with this knowledge. This is the character, this is the content of the character, the personality of their leaders, the biblical leaders you've appointed over us. Let us fill our joy in being obedient to the men that you have so graciously supplied. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.